feel attacked. Every every tomorrow, there's a new possibility of going up to Newport. We could ha- road trip. It would be so fun. I don't understand the draw. Oh, it's so good because you went to. But the it has the, the tennis hall of fame. Great. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And today we have the newest member of the Overrun team. Steph Leather is joining us. Hi, Steph. Hi. Steph has become part of our team, and her background and experience is in mental health awareness. She is also an EMT. Steph, give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll get into what we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently a clinical operations manager for a national health psychology practice and a certified screener in Monmouth County. I've been an EMT for 11 years and worked in ERs pretty much across the state, I feel like I can say at this point. Um, I've worked down in Camden. I've worked at Jersey Shore. I work, I'm out of Monmouth now. Um, and I speak at a lot of different conferences, primarily on psychological treatment of different patients, crisis patients, and first responder mental health. And pursuant to that, we're going to talk about death notifications today because we are bad at it. We don't do it enough. We don't uh, teach our students how to do it enough. And we're one of the, uh, we're one of the frankly, few fields in medicine, which has to deal with death a disproportionate amount of time. Um, most clinicians are able to kind of, you know, punt Marabin patients to the next department or onto the next floor. Uh, in EMS, it's something that we experience kind of disproportionate to the rest of medicine. So Steph, talk to us about what death notifications actually are and the, the problem that we're facing right now. Yeah, absolutely. So the death notifications are when you're sitting down with the family, friends, basically anybody on scene. And it starts even before the pronouncement or the decision to stop efforts happens. A lot of the time it starts as soon as you walk in the door. How are you communicating to the family and the police officers and everybody else there? How are you updating them? If you're updating them, how are you telling them and notifying them? And then what support are you offering them afterwards? The biggest problem is that only a a, a study that was done in 2020 found that only about half of BLS and ALS receive training. And out of that, only about a third and forty of BLS and about 44% of ALS actually have any kind of CEUs after that. And there's a very heavy relationship that shows that if you do a high number of death notifications, you're going to be more burnt out. However, if you've had training and education in that, that burnout rate goes down. So we're not training people. People are getting more burned out from it and they don't know. And it's just kind of a cyclical problem that we're seeing. And this is something that our friend uh, Remley Crow has written about kind of extensively. There's a couple of papers that are going to be linked in the show notes where just the experience of walking into a house and talking to a family and letting them know that their loved one has died. We, I think as an industry, we spend a lot of time focusing on how as providers we treat the family because we're very, you know, obviously we're very patient centric, very family centric, um, but we don't really take a lot of time to focus on how that secondary trauma sort of affects us, right? How the 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 thing that we've talked about off the air is, generally speaking, most people will only ever see a couple people die in their life, right? It's usually a relative, and usually when they see them, it's in the setting in a in a funeral home or in a wake. So there's been sort of, I hate to use the word processing. Um, because I feel like it's going to reflect on the body, but it's it's mental processing that the family has been able to do. Um, 
we are put into an environment where, you know, if the average person sees three dead bodies in a lifetime, we might see that in a shift, um, which is certainly we're consolidating that trauma onto our providers. So Steph, let's kind of start big and then, and work down more granular. Um, what do you think the, the nidus of the problem is and what are some basic steps that we can take without going through extensive, you know, training and psychology to try and handle these situations better? I think the biggest thing is, and the biggest problem is if you've ever taken one of my classes, I kind of talk about this like gray area that mental health falls into. There's no, you can't do the same process, right? If somebody's having chest pain, you can give them nitro. If somebody's blood pressure is high, you can give meds. With grief, death notifications, burnout, any of it, it's such a gray area and everybody reacts so differently. So having any kind of training on it, it obviously is helpful, right? That's like the obvious big picture. I think on a smaller level, supporting new providers is huge, right? We can't, there's not enough funding in the world to be able to have every provider go through death notification training. But like, you know, right? We've all been doing this for for years. We all know. So when we get a new provider, explaining it to them, talking to them, not just waiting until it happens, but saying, hey, this is something that happens. Let's talk about it now. Let's practice it now. Let's go through scenarios now and then modeling it for them when it does happen. There's research that shows that having that modeling can really help. And if it won't replace the training, but it will greatly improve the outcomes and how comfortable that person is in dealing with it. And so let's talk about some numbers and, and some background here. So Danny, let's talk about the amount of, of people that die pre-hospitally and, and what we know about that thus far. Uh, well, there was a pretty good paper done on it um, in paramedicpractice.com. And uh, we'll link that to the show notes. Um, it's really hard to quantify the number of pre-hospital deaths. We're not really sure. We know how many people die. We're, we have more fuzzy math on whether on the actual number of pre-hospital deaths. Um, we do realize, honestly, that most out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, and that's how we, the vast majority of our our uh, our deaths are um cardiac arrest situations as opposed to trauma situations. Um, most of them are not survivable. I think the national average for cardiac arrest survival is what, seven to 10%. Yeah, it depends on, depends on what data set you read, but yeah, I've, I've, I've seen as high as 10, I've seen as low as three. Yeah. It's somewhere in there. And again, fuzzy, we're not really a hundred percent sure, but what it does guarantee is that every provider in the pre-hospital world is going to come across the death and have to make a notification to a family. Um, and there is literally no training in this. Like I looked through the EMT uh, textbook. If I found a page on it, that was out of a 700 page book, that would be a lot. Um, you know, we, we learn as we go and that can be very problematic because when we run into situations where you learn as you go, you either, if you have a good person who knows how to do it, you do very well. What if you have somebody who's not good at it? And that's my, my problem. That's the problem. And we'll certainly talk about different strategies that you can, you can work with in the truck and with your partner, how to, to better cope with these type of, um, these type of incidents that you run into. But I mean, you're right. I, I think that, knowing going into cardiac into going into cardiac arrest going into ems um it, it, we talk a lot about cardiac arrest management and i think that it, we've certainly talked a lot over the years about you know the the toxic heroism type of approach 
where, you know, you're there to save lives and, you know, we're there to make a difference. And while that is certainly true in some settings, oftentimes we're there to be performative and sort of be a grief mop for the families, which is also a, a very important role that, you know, sometimes isn't just isn't filled. Um, so, you know, going into a cardiac arrest, knowing that there's a, a fair to good chance you're going to have to tell the family about their loved one or family member that has passed um, or, or that has died, because we're going to talk about using plain language in a moment. Um, it, it's just a skill set that we don't teach and that we need to know better. So when you're going into a scene, especially if you know that it's a cardiac arrest, we know that there's dangers in the scene and things can, can be kind of hectic. Seth, take a minute and just talk to us about some scene safety features that we should look at when we're going into a scene that either is or could be a cardiac arrest and just kind of things to look out for and keep in the back of our heads. Yeah, absolutely. I always also preface this by saying that I work in psych, so I am very hyper aware of my own safety, almost to a fault sometimes. I think the biggest thing is that everybody's going to be comfortable in a different way, right? I will never sit next to someone to tell them to give the death notification. I won't do it. I'll stand in the middle of the room where I have room to step back, I where I have room to move, where I know that there's a police officer standing right next to me, but I'm a female and I could probably get snapped in half by a lot of different people that I'm telling. You also don't know how someone's going to react. So giving yourself that space to maintain your own safety is really important. There are some people who have a very calm demeanor and almost go into a shock where they offer to bake you cookies. There's other people who will swing at you. I've gotten thrown up on. It's a wide array of things. And I think it varies based on how comfortable you are. My biggest recommendation is deliver the initial news, see how they react, and then get a little bit closer. Um, always kind of stand a little bit farther away and don't kneel down to a place where you can get hit. Um, I usually, you'll find me standing in the middle of the room initially to talk to them. And then as they start to calm down, say, is it okay if I come sit down and then sit next to them and have that conversation? Once you, you can kind of see how they're going to react, right? We can always gauge pretty quickly if they're going to freak out or stay calm. You just want to give them time to process that news because it's life-changing, right? Nobody wakes up and expects to lose a loved one. It's not something that anyone usually has on their bingo card for the day. And Danny, talk a little bit about positioning yourself with like points of egress, ways to get out of the room. Again, something that we we don't really train and something that we do super poorly. How often how often do you go into a house and you know the patient is in the back bedroom mm -hmm. where yeah. you know there's there's just there's no way out if you needed to get out? So talk to us about looking for those kind of things and how we can kind of better understand and manage our scene. Yeah, this is this is one th place where your your police officers can actually help. I mean, sometimes they can hurt you, hurt you, but they can actually help you. One of the things is if you're in that back room, bring the person out to the living room or the kitchen where there's a doorway where there's stuff between you and the patient. Um, that's a good idea. Uh, Steph made a really good point. Don't get into their inside, like between the wingspan of their hands. Um, you know, when you're staring straight, when you're sitting straight at somebody, especially if you're kneeling in your position of disadvantage, um, these, this is not where you want to be because if they get upset and they start flailing or they start, you know, they, they take you as the bearer of bad news, so to speak, you've got very limited options to kind of step back and protect yourself. And um, just so we're clear, we're, we're all also talking about this from, from experience of having done the wrong thing a bunch of times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So this isn't just like, yeah, I'm going to just say maybe I've broken a couple of these rules. This isn't uh, so this isn't ivory tower stuff or like do as I say, not as I do. Uh, this is all stuff that we've we've done wrong and learned from. 
Um, I, I gave a notification to a gentleman once his, uh, his young daughter had passed. Um, and I was on a, on a stoop, like a front stoop with steps. And I was, he was standing on the landing and I was like a step or two below him. And my man was a bodybuilder in his spare time. And he was also CO. <laughs> um, and so I, I gave his notification and I had that moment where like, these are my last moments on earth. Yeah. Like I, I just, I, I've just ruined this guy's evening family and life. Um, and like, you know, as you see like tension building in someone, like their traps start yeah, to those rise are, up and do that. It's like, those are things you really got to watch for. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. don't do what I did. Clenching of the fists, um, you know, that thousand yard stare kind mm -hmm. of look, you know, the gnashing all, of the teeth. The, yeah. yeah those, I was going to say the cheeks when they start to tighten and you can kind of see the balls. Yeah. Yep. When their eyes start to kind of those, widen, it's, those when, are, those it's are when you start seeing signals. Yeah, it's when you start to see someone become like actively more hyper sympathetic in front of you, right? Yeah. Like you right. start seeing all those kind of symptoms show up. Um, that's where you want to kind of get yourself into a place where you, where you can sort of escape. What are Steph? What are some of the signs of danger that we should look for? Like, I think in a lot of the literature you read about posturing, um, but I, I don't know that that's fully elucidated in the way that it's described. So if I'm, if I'm an EMT coming off the street and I haven't done this, you know, a lot or recently, tell me some of the signs that I can look for, for someone that might pres presumably be a danger to me in the not too distant future. Yeah, absolutely. So if they're sitting down, that's always a positive. Um, and they're dangerous, but not as dangerous. Um, I usually will ask people to sit down because it gives me at least a little bit of a head start. If they do get aggressive, the biggest thing is if they, look like something that's under like extreme pressure, right? Like if you put a can where I'm going to use a submarine, right? But like you hear like the submarine has like all like the creaking and like it had like the few things that kind of popped. Like if you can kind of see that like in a person and they start to like slowly fist their hands, a lot of the times they do like a breath. People who are going to start crying, it's shaky. If it's a steady, like, sigh out, that's usually a red flag for me. That's so niche that I've picked up on um, before people usually snap. If it's, like, the shaky, I'm about to start sobbing, that's very different than, like, the steady let out. If they start leaning back and forth, rocking with the, like, hands on their knees, rubbing, you see their palms get sweaty, their eyes get dilated, kind of all those things. We work in this field, and we depend on our gut for most of the things, right? We don't know as much about medicine as we think we do. And most of the time it's that gut feeling of like, mm, this isn't good. Trust it every time. Don't question it. That's the biggest thing because everyone reacts differently to anger. So it's a trust your gut thing and don't go in by yourself, but there's no way to know how people are going to snap. What are some of the comforting things that we can say to patients, family members? I think we had talked about this off air a little bit. Um, the first thing is to be aware of names and pronouns. And I think we often overlook that. If you're, if you're not sure how to refer to someone, one, always assume you don't know how to refer to them. I just want to, right before you even get started, I just want to confirm your relationship. Can you tell me your relationship to the patient? Oh, I'm, I'm Ed's best friend. Okay. Now we know Ed. Okay, great. I think the other thing is I always say, like, tell me a story about them, right? Use a blanket statement because now I'm going to get their name. They're probably going to use pronouns and they're also going to use the tense, right? They're going to say, oh my God, Ed is so great. He is 
average, whatever, or he's going to, or they're going to say like, oh, was. I think it can be very jarring for family members to hear someone refer to them or their loved one as was when you're not expecting it. So it kind of gives them a little bit of control. The other thing that's very helpful is to help them anticipate what's going to happen next. We know what's going to happen next, right? So from here, they're going to, when with BLS, from here, the medics are going to come in. They're going to hook him up to the heart monitor. They're going to make sure he doesn't have any heart activity. They're going to call and talk to the doctor and they're going to get an official time of death. After that, the ME is going to come and remove the body and the police officers will kind of walk you through what that looks like. And then I will turn and look at the police officer and then he'll start talking. And then I'll kind of wait a few seconds and say, do you have any other questions to me for me? I just want to get back or what questions do you have and go. And I think the biggest thing is that people don't know, right? We deal with this all the time and we take that for granted, but continually checking in of what questions do you have, giving them some control back is very helpful. The other thing that can be really helpful is giving them a task of- Go boil water. Right. Right. Where is the DNR? Right. Where is that paper? Because I'm going to have to start CPR if, if we don't find that paper or- I always think it's helpful if you've ever been on a Neptune ambulance, there's probably like a bunch of like individual tissue packets shoved somewhere in one of the rigs. I never did a death notification without tissues. It was just one of those like very comforting things. You know, they're going to need tissues, right? Like that's, you can get them for a dollar. I think that it's like a great investment, but just being there. And again, like, tell me a story about them. And I think that's an important thing is the, the small comforts, right? So there's culturally in EMS, I think we've gotten to a point where it's very easy to get almost excited about going to a cardiac arrest or pronouncement, not because of all the games you get to play, but because it's an easy chart. Um, It's, I understand the cynicism of saying that a pronouncement chart is an easy chart, but the reality exists that in the ambulance, those are conversations that we have with one another. And I think it's, especially if, you know, this is your 19th dispatch of the day. Um, I, I think it's easy to go in and be very flippant about what's happening without realizing that, you know, this family's entire existence has just been thrown into upheaval. Um, <clears throat> Dan, you and I are, are big fans of the show Scrubs, and there's there's a great episode where Perry Cox's character is explaining to a, another resident what is happening in another room where they're explaining, you know, it seems like there's a lack of compassion but that doctor is explaining to that family that their entire family unit has just been essentially destroyed. And is like, what do you think he's going to do next? He's going to go back to work. Like mm-hmm. no, no one else in that room is going back to work today. Mm-hmm. So there's, there is a, a very delicate balance. I think what, what are your thoughts on how we can handle it better sort of psychologically? I think just metabolizing it. Right. I, I mean, I think, if you've been in EMS long enough and you say you've never had a CPR call and then immediately gone back in the ambulance center, right? So what are we doing for lunch? Like you're probably lying. Um, I think it's, we turn our brains off so much. And I think that's another reason why we find it so hard to be compassionate to patients because you have to make some kind of empathetic connection to the family when you're doing these things. And if you're sitting down and you're hearing about this patient, then it becomes a real person, right? They're no longer just that. And I think admitting that it's hard is really helpful. Again, if you've ever ridden with me probably in the last three years, I stopped asking like, are you okay? Right. Because how often is it like, yeah, I'm fine. Are you okay? And you're like, yeah, I'm fine. (laughs) All the time. I cry very often, but like all the time. So I just started saying like, well, that sucked. 
and like usually the person like takes it as permission to be like it did and then we can actually talk about it and not just be like yeah it's fine like just saying that it sucked like that's a statement so even if like you're with your partner and you guys aren't that close like that's still an objective statement losing somebody's life sucked right we go we're generally mostly competitive in this field we want to save every patient so when we don't do that, that's a blow to one, our ego. And again, cynical, but realistic. Just saying, wow, that sucked and admitting it and then taking care of yourself is really the most important part of it. We all have sticky points, right? I don't think that there's anyone who's ever responded to a pronouncement or a death and they've never had any kind of like personal sticky point with this. We talk about kids. We talk about someone who's our parents age. We talk about the sudden death. We talk, something is going to stick with us eventually. And having the skills to manage that is really important. So that's an interesting point. And also I, I think something that we can kind of build off of um, maybe as a, as a cultural failing is we do spend a lot of time talking about how to handle, you know, really ugly, messy traumas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pediatric arrests, pediatric shootings, all those kind of things. But we, I don't know that we spend enough time on on the routine stuff. And I, I wonder if that's a function of it's assumed to be routine. So, you know, if if this is a pronouncement that you've done 400 times, why is it not okay on the 401st time? Well, we don't. And if you look at even in ACLS and PALS, I mean, it's very perfunctory how they go over end of life stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's almost like it's assumed that you know how to do this and you can screw this up really, really easily. I mean, just simply, simply using the wrong words can cause big, big problems. Uh, Not so much to your own safety, but psychologically it can damage people. Uh, this, yeah. this reminds me of like, remember years ago, there was that motorcycle helmet debate over whether EMS or the trauma teams should remove the motorcycle helmet on trauma patients and trauma teams were taught that EMS would do it. And EMS was taught that trauma teams would do it. So nobody did it. So no one did it <laughs> like that. <laughs> right. it, it, it feels like there's a parallel to that right now where it's like, well, EMTs and medics do pronouncements all the time. Like, okay, right. But you know, I've done. You know, and I, I'm not saying me, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic, but, you know, if you it's not uncommon to do, what, 150 pronouncements a year. Yeah, right. I, that's is that an unfair? That's, I think it's probably a bit high, but I think I think you do more than you think you do. Well, so I mean, OK, so let, let's say it's 100. Right. Yeah. So if, if it's 100, which, you know, if you figure you work, uh, if you're working full time, you're probably doing 150, 180 shifts a year. One pronouncement of shift is probably not an extreme number, but again, it, it could be 50. The number is, is somewhat meaningless here, where if you've been doing it for 20 years, you it know, you, you, you've you still seen logarithmically more dead people than the average human is really, you know, designed yeah. to have to, to have to take. I think we've we've done very good as providers at maladjusting. Um, conversations that we've had, like, you know, like you never want a lay person to come in and be like, what's the craziest thing you've seen? But we have a lot of those conversations amongst ourselves of like, yo, I went to a pronouncement one time and, you know, this is what happened. Um, I think a lot of times we'll hear those stories and sort of conflate them for every story. Um, Like there, I I had to do a pronouncement uh, when Anna and I were working together where I had to get tied off uh, on a rope and like belay myself down a hill to get access to the patient. And yeah, see, like that was awesome. That was fun. I was like a mountain climber. Uh, 
but that pronouncement wasn't particularly traumatic for me. That was a, a, a interesting thing I got to do at work that day. But that doesn't mean that the next pronouncement isn't going to be traumatic. Right. You know, and I, I think we we are very good as a as a culture of sort of, you know, masking how we feel about all these things. Yeah. So when we're talking to the families and obviously you want to be as open and compassionate as you can be in understanding you want to use their name you want to use whatever pronouns they use and and the tense again is very important as steph said because you don't want to be like well tell me what dave did for his for a living and they're like i'm sorry what now how old was what? your husband man? yeah ex exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> how long how long were you married until were you were you happily married tell me all about everything that happened up until this morning um <laughs> But, you know, it's and it, don't get me wrong, there are times where having those conversations with families, you'll learn really interesting stories about, you know, people's lives. And um, it, it is always very fascinating. But talk to us about the I guess the vernacular that we should use. Um, is it better to use plain English? Should we use the word dead? Should we use euphemisms like passed on, gone to a better place in heaven, things like that? What What is the the most effective way that we could communicate this patient's dying to their family and to their loved ones? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to correct you on something you said, though. So maladaptive, this is like a huge psychological thing, and I talk about it all the time. So maladaptive indicates that some it doesn't allow you to function in your environment. Adaptive does. So your adaptive skills may not be great and may be us turning our emotions off, but that's still adaptive. Because can you imagine if every single difficult case was a mental breakdown for you or too much for you that you yes, can't I can. function? Yes, we all, we all can. <laughs> <laughs> right. But like we wouldn't be able to go to the next case. Right. It would be the end of the day every single time. So right. it's not the the healthiest, but it is still adaptive. And it's it's maladaptive when we go out of our field and we're talking to our loved ones and they're like, how's work? And you're like, fine. Or like when you're having conversation with them and you can have no empathy for them either. That's when it gets maladaptive. But I'm correcting that. I think the biggest thing is just to say they died. Um, I whenever I talk about this, I, when I was seven and I was found out that my brother had died, they said that he went away and I was like, well, let's, we'll just go get him. Like he went, he went to a farm upstate. Also, my parents told me that my dog did that. And then I saw Marley and me like four years later and it was devastating. Oh no. What? <laughs> no. Yeah. I that's walked a, out of the movie theater sobbing. That's one. And, of, it, that's always, that is one of the worst euphemisms. Like, like I, I have family that have farms in upstate New York. So whenever, I, whenever I heard, like, <laughs> oh yeah, they've gone to a farm upstate. Like, well then, let's go get them. to let's go to our cousin's house. That's <laughs> if that's where they are. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing is like just saying, and obviously you can say like we've done everything we can. I like we I've spoken with the doctor and say like. Do you want me to explain more of what we did is totally fine because you can go into it and they may have no idea what you're saying, but you're listing off a bunch of words and that's comforting to them. They don't know you, so they don't know we did everything we could. They don't know what that means. Most people don't right. know what we do. But then at the end of the day, say at this time, he, they have been declared dead or we have stopped and we have stopped resuscitation efforts and using the D word feels yucky but this isn't a time where we want any room for interpretation. We right, need to be yeah. clear. This is one and of I, those like binary finite things. Like this is, this is an yes. end to a thing. Yes. Right. You're either dead or alive. And you can even say like their heart has stopped beating. We've tried to get it to start again. It has not at this time. We've stopped resuscitation efforts. I'm sorry for your loss, but so-and-so is dead. And that's, that's a super important thing, I think. Um, and Dan, I, I want you to kind of, 
pick up off this too. Something that they they do teach in ACLS that I've I found has been at least a little bit effective um, is during a resuscitation. You know, it, when you're working it, when there's a lot of people around, there's family and cops and whatever. Taking the time and it's, you know, get the resuscitation going, right? Put them on whatever device you have to do CPR, establish access, intubate them, all that. I find that it's helpful to take a minute to talk to one of the family members, be like, listen, there's a lot of stuff happening right now. This is the position that we're in. You know, uh, your whatever, your father's heart has stopped. We are beating it for him. He has stopped breathing. We are breathing for him. You know, explaining like oh, yeah. step by step what oh, yeah. all of these things are. I do think that ACLS does a good job at, at talking about that. One of their modules um, about actually talking with the family, I think is fairly effective. So talk to us about communicating with the family during a resuscitation, Dan, because that can get very, very complicated and very confusing for a lot of people. Yeah. So I can, I can speak to like what I do and what works for what's worked for me in my practice. Um, and this is, this is a role for your team leader. This is your, your senior person, generally your senior person on scene, um, somebody who knows what's going on. And like Ed said, you start your resuscitation, get, get your access, you know, make sure you've got good CPR going, check and see if you have a shockable rhythm, you know, use your advanced airway. And then I, that's what I would kind of, once everything's going kind of smoothly, that's when you take a step out, you go introduce yourself to the family and say, Hey, here's where we're at. Here's what happened. Uh, their heart stopped. We're, we're supporting their life right now. We're keeping them, keeping them going. Um, we're going to see how this plays out, but I want you to understand that they're very, very sick. Uh, I use gravely ill. I use, I also put in there that, you know, in most situations, people like the people in this situation don't survive. Doesn't mean we're giving up, but the odds are against us right now, but we're not giving up. Then you but go back in, see what you're doing. And then you can have that discussion at the end. And I think it's important to keep them up to, to keep them kind of updated throughout the resuscitation as well, right? When you get a ROSC back in a patient, I, I tend to explain like, okay, this is what's happening, right? Their heart wasn't beating on its own. Now it is, but there's still X, Y, and Z that we have to deal with. So, sure. you know, now, now we have one less problem, but it's one less problem out of a hundred. Right. And right. I'll usually say what we have now, we may not have in five minutes. And sure. if we have it later on, that's... Now the concern is not so much the heart. We're worried about the damage to the brain because the brain went without oxygen. So these things are very important. We're not going to have answers for you right now, but understand that they're really very, very sick still, and they're not out of the woods. Um, you don't want to give false hope. I think sometimes, you know, oh, we got a pulse back. People watch TV and they think it's going to be like TV. And after the next commercial break, they'll be sitting up, you know, having their ice cream in bed and everything. <laughs> Talking about how crazy the, the whole night was. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, but you've got to you've got to keep those keep those ideas kind of realistic and keep them in the back of their head that they're very sick. They're really sick. Um, you don't have to get into details like, you know, well, we, we've got them on a presser, we're using antiarrhythmics, we're doing it. That's not, that's going to all just get lost in the wash. What they need to tell them is that they're very, very sick uh, and they're very, very tenuously holding on to life. That doesn't mean we're giving up right now, uh, but we just, you've got to understand that. I so, think the other, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Steph. I think the other thing that's helpful for BLS is if we're starting CPR, I always say 
to like preface it of like the paramedics are coming, they're on their way. They can do everything the hospital can do for his current state. If that changes and we get a heartbeat back, then we'll transport him to the hospital. But they are going to, they take the same exact class as every single doctor in the ER and nurse, and they have all the same medications. We often teach the doctors and nurses. Right. And I think that's helpful too, because then it's like a lot of the times, right? Like when you watch the TV show, they throw him into the back of the ambulance and take off running down the street. And I like a lot after all, they're like, why don't you just go to the hospital? Like just preface it and explain it because then they're not wondering it. And that also helps them. I have to see if I can find the paper. Um, but there, there was something that was published not that long ago that said in television and uh, in film cardiac arrests, the survivability of discharge is something like 85% across all media. Yeah, I saw that. Um, which, it, it, like, obviously that's not the case. Uh, right. You know, you're, 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 the patients are often not going to, you know, wake up. I, I can say in my in my career, I've had one Lazarus patient, um, which is definitely an episode we should <laughs> we should talk to Anna about. Um, that happened recently in Monmouth County too. Well, and Anna and I had a patient who we, I, he was probably just a respiratory uh, arrest, but he, he was resuscitated and he woke up in the back of the ambulance, um, oh. which was it, like, he, he woke up before I got a chance to intubate him. So it was very dramatic. But again, this is, it, that is one of those stories that Anna and I will tell like at a conference mm-hmm. as an outlier for every one of those patients, uh, surely we've all had hundreds or thousands of pronouncements that went the way that one would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I've I've listened to the episode and now I want to kind of improve my organization's handling of death notifications. Steph, how do I, I guess, build a training pro? Give me, give me like a, a five minute, 10,000 foot view. How can I kind of start to train my staff? Are there checklists that I can employ? Like what what tools can I have in my organization to make this easier for my staff? Yeah, I think the biggest thing um, I teach a class about, it's called ESCAPE, but it's this acronym. And the idea is to help psychological trauma prevention. And I think that's helpful in a million different ways. The biggest thing is like, so S is social support. Just talking to the patient, introducing yourself, how you, your first interaction with that family is going to tell them how credible you are and how compassionate you are. And that sets the stage. So yeah, blowing right by them is very helpful. You can just turn and say, I'll be right back to come talk to you. They know you're coming back. That's mm-hmm. yeah. helpful introducing yourself, explaining your role, explaining if you're BLS, the medics are coming. I know there's a lot going on. Just validating it is helpful. Yes. Yeah, you're building rapport. Right, exactly. That's really what it is. And then the next one is choice and control explaining it, telling them what's going on. If there's a way to give them options, do you guys want to step outside while we continue to do this? Do you guys want to sit down if you're talking to them? Wherever you can insert a choice is very helpful. The next thing is to anticipate, which I think I've already talked about. And the last thing is to plan. If you're looking at who can we call? Can we call someone to help you? This is going to be really hard. Can we call your neighbor? Can we call so-and-so? Hey, your neighbor is outside. Can I bring her in to, so she can support you through this? Just helping them plan is huge. I think that's like the biggest thing. Just that acronym alone is extremely helpful. Obviously getting training in would be very helpful. I think a lot of the, shockingly, um, I was just out in Wyoming and they their morgue director comes and talks a lot about talking to families and doing body viewings and like what he's learned there's a wealth of knowledge in really bizarre places sometimes that you don't expect, but reaching out to people to get that expertise in 
can be extremely helpful, right? So We're not build, gonna... build off that for a second. What What is, I guess, what are your views on letting the family see the body, I guess, during and after resuscitation? It's different. Everybody's going to respond differently. Um, I feel like personally, I wouldn't want to see the body of a loved one in that state. I know a lot of people who do. When I worked at Cooper, we worked very hard to clean up bodies so people could see them everybody's going to grieve differently. Some people want to see the body. Other people don't want to see the body. There are times that I say that it can be very traumatic. And I would recommend, right, when we're talking about like really difficult things where they have tubes coming in and out, saying like, this is the state, I'm not going to stop you from seeing them. But I think it might be traumatic. And I think it may be better if you wait until they've been cleaned up a little bit. Right. Preface them. And if they do, if they're like, no, screw you, I want to go one, go back, try to clean up a little bit, but also then explaining like there's going to be a two coming out of his mouth. There's a lot of wires all over, like just giving them the heads up, but everybody's different. There's no rhyme or reason of why. And some people regret not seeing the body. Some people regret seeing the body. It's just, you don't know. I've done it. Um, it's worked positively for me uh, in my practice. Uh, but you do have to gauge the response. Uh, some, you know, see how that person's responding. This is not some place where you want that agitated, upset person. Um, you know, you may want somebody who wants to be there with them at the end. That's a whole other story. Um, you can, you know, we. That's something that you can consider. But you've got to, you've got to see how they're responding to it. I think Steph's a hundred percent right. And I do think it's important to sort of have the understanding that every, just as we talk about every resuscitation is different, every case is different. It's very easy to kind of go into autopilot when you're going into these arrests and into these pronouncements. Um, and it's just something to kind of keep in mind that every every single case is a unique experience that you're going to have. Um, and it, the best you can do as a clinician is kind of build up, you know, build off of it from the the amount of times that you've done it before. Uh, I think this is a very important topic. Uh, it frustrates me that we haven't spent enough time talking to EMTs and medics about how to actually do this properly. Um, I think that's led to uh, sort of a downfall in the way that we tend to process death uh, and certainly in the way that we grieve. But if you have any questions or concerns, please reach out to us and let us know. Let us know what you think about death notifications. Have you received enough education on it? And incidentally, if you don't feel like you've listened to Danny, Steph, or I enough, we will all be at the New Jersey Conference in Atlantic City in November. Come on down, see all the Overrun gang, talk about all the things EMS. Check us out on social media, TikTok, subscribe to the podcast, do all of that stuff. Thank you, Steph, for joining us. Look out for her work with the Overrun as she is part of our team now. And for the Overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And, and we'll I'm talk Steph. to you all. <laughs> and I'm Steph. <laughs> we will talk to you all next time. Get home safe.